sing as one for this country we're walking on we stand together to protect this land for the future we're hand in hand welcome to another episode of the environmental as anything podcast After eight months of deliberations and over 1,700 submissions, the Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements report was tabled in the Australian Parliament on Friday, 30th of October 2020. Former New South Wales Fire Commissioner Greg Mullins is an internationally recognised expert in responding to major bushfires and natural disasters and has developed a keen interest in the linkages between climate change and extreme weather events. He joined Environmental as Anything to give us his perspective on the Royal Commission's report and what needs to be done next. Greg, thank you very much for joining Environmental as Anything again. Oh, pleasure to be with you. A, a huge day, uh, almost exactly a year since the bushfires uh, of, of last year and the Royal Commission report has just come out today. A uh, huge document, uh, almost 600 pages long, hundreds of, uh, of uh, recommendations a lot for anybody to wade through. I guess you've had a pretty good look at it. Could, could you give me your uh, best summary? Like, what are the three key points you think that people should know about this report? The, the big thing to me, it, it's very comprehensive. Um, I haven't really found anything in the recommendations that I or other ex-fire chiefs would disagree with. The big ticket item to me is that chapter and verse it describes how the Black Summer fires could not have occurred without climate change, how we can expect more fires like this in the future, and even worse. It goes on to describe how climate change is supercharging heat waves, um, probably droughts, uh, floods and cyclones. There'll be less cyclones, but they'll be more intense when they do occur. So... While there's no specific recommendation about climate change action, it's very clear throughout the report about nearly 100 mentions of climate throughout the report. And it says very clearly that there must be mitigation actions as well as adaptation because on the worst days in the most extreme weather driven by fuel, uh, driven by climate change, fire and emergency services will no longer be able to cope, just as we saw in our black summer. Mm. Mm. So generally it does hit on the important issues of the climate emergency. Um, What would you say the key headline actions that need to be taken from those recommendations? Look, the, the, the key thing required of the government is to actually follow through because it, it does note in, in the report that there have been dozens, probably hundreds of other inquiries over the years, and there are hundreds and hundreds of recommendations languishing because they weren't followed through or they weren't funded. So it's incumbent on the government. Um, firstly, the Prime Minister should come out and endorse all 80 recommendations. I also believe the opposition leader should join him in doing that. So it's a bipartisan thing on behalf of all Australians who are being placed in danger and make sure that it's it's properly resourced. But the one big thing is that our so-called emissions abatement policies in Australia must be revised. They must forget this madness of a so-called gas-led recovery 
pouring more poison into our atmosphere and dooming future generations to even worse than we've been experiencing. Mm. Mm. It's a big picture report. It's uh, taken thousands of hours and uh, I suspect millions of dollars to accumulate. And really what we need to see is uh, for it to actually be implemented. That, that's what you're calling for? Well, yes. And <clears throat> again, the recommendations are mainly about adapting to the new dangerous here and now, which is going to get worse. And it makes the point that even if we cut emissions to zero tomorrow, We've got 20, 30 years of warming locked in because of past emissions. So extreme weather will get worse and therefore impacts of natural disasters and fires will get worse before they get better. <clears throat> it's about stabilising things and then driving it down. Um, the government can't wriggle out of this one. It now has independent reviews on the bushfires from South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland, all describing in detail, in scientific detail, how climate change is driving fires that can no longer be fought by fire and emergency services. But on the worst days, there is no stopping these fires. That hazard reduction will no longer protect people on days of extreme and catastrophic fire danger. Um, so we, we need to deal with what's causing this, and that's our missions. And as Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of the UK, tried to point out to our Prime Minister this week, Australia is seriously out of step with the rest of the world and Canberra is out of step with every state and territory which all have, whether they're Liberal national governments or Labor governments, all have net zero emissions policies for uh, 2050. Yes, indeed. Look, uh, Greg, I know you're a very busy man. I really appreciate you giving us your insights into that. Thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover before we wrap it up? No, look, the, the report goes into a lot of practical things like having our own um, large aerial firefighting capability. That's crucial now that because of climate change, our fire seasons overlap between Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere. And California is ablaze still, as I speak, even though it's autumn over there, mm. um, about building standards, about community resilience, education and warnings. So, look, I think it's an excellent report and it deserves to be supported by all sides of Parliament. Well, thank you for speaking out uh, for the emergency service workers and uh, for all your good work. Uh, in, in, in protecting us from those emergencies uh, in the past. We really appreciate your ongoing efforts. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it. That was former New South Wales Fire Commissioner Greg Mullins. Professor Leanne Wiseman from the School of Law at Griffith University has explored the legal consequence of the adoption and uptake of digital technologies. She joins us today to talk about our right of repair. Thanks very much, for making the time to speak to environmentalists anything today. You're very welcome. I'm glad I can. There's been some really significant news with regard to the right to repair. There's been a, an inquiry announced by the Productivity Commission to focus on uh, consumer ability to repair faulty goods and to access repair services at a competitive price. Now, you're an expert in the, the legal aspects of, uh, of this uh, kind of issue. Do you think Australia has an adequate consumer protection for the right to repair already or, or why do we need more? Well, at present, we don't really have 
any laws that provide consumers' rights in relation to repair. We do have limited rights under our Australian consumer law. But what we're looking at now is with digital goods is that it's usually the um, contracts that accompany our new vacuum cleaner or fridge or even our smart cars and smartphones that restrict access to those objects themselves. So we don't have any laws in Australia that actually give the consumer the ability to take that object, whether it be your car, your computer or your phone, to an independent third party repairer. Um, there's lots of tie-in arrangements where you have to go back to the original manufacturer because they have the diagnostic technology to work out what's wrong with the product and they have complete control over how to open that product and they own the computer software that you know basically allows that product to run. So this is what this legislation is aiming to do is really create more of a level playing field for consumers so that you have a choice to take your smartphone or smart TV to a third-party independent qualified technician, but you don't have to return to the manufacturer. Everybody's probably experienced that and perhaps uh, we take it for granted, don't we? Are Australians crying out for this with, the, with, with a loud voice or do you think this is an unrecognised problem for a lot of people? Well, I think we've all had that um, issue of a broken screen on our iPhones and we try to get it repaired somewhere and then we take it into the Apple store and they won't honour um, the warranty on the phone. So I think increasingly it's a problem. Um, There's certainly been a significant issue in the car repair industry for a number of years. The ACCC have been monitoring the aftermarket in terms of um, manufacturer repairs and availability of spare parts. And um, only this morning, just as an update, Michael Zucker, the Assistant Treasurer, announced that in the next couple of weeks, we're actually getting some mandatory data sharing laws in relation to car repair information so that car manufacturers will be required to share that information with independent um, mechanics so that you could take your car somewhere else. So it's been bubbling along for a couple of years. Shane Rattenbury, the ACT Minister for Consumer Affairs in 2019, raised it at a meeting that consumers in Australia needed to have a right to repair. And um, there's certainly been online petitions by the Bauer about um, the need of consumers, you know, to have the ability to actually open or tinker with or modify or repair the goods that we actually own. It's, um, it, it's actually tied in uh, quite strongly to the, uh, the, the concept of planned obsolescence, isn't it? Which, which is a big impediment to sustainability. Exactly. And I can even use my own example here. I think um, my, parent, my parents were married in 1954 and I think they were given a Westinghouse fridge and that fridge still operates under the house. And when it breaks down, um, they're able to get that repaired. Um, I've had in my last house, 10 years, three fridges. Um, when the ice machine breaks or if the seals break, they literally come and replace the fridge because the fridge has been built in a way that it's not repairable. So it's cheaper for them to take away the old broken fridge and give me a new fridge under a warranty. Um, that's not exactly what I want because I don't like to think of three big white, you know, fridges sitting somewhere in landfill. No. But this whole issue around how products um, are being made and designed um, so that you can't take them apart, you can't replace a bulb in some of the lighting now, you can't put a new door on a fridge um, 
because those spare parts aren't available and also the machines or devices aren't being made in a way which enables them to be repaired. So this is very much how the Europeans have approached the right to repair issue. They're actually requiring manufacturers to make part, um, make their um, devices, electrical, white goods, lighting, in a way that are able to be repaired. And there's a requirement that they keep spare parts available for up to 10 years and that you're able to repair these devices with everyday common tools. You don't need special screwdrivers as we do with the Apple iPhone, for example. So it's very much about if we can repair the things that we own, um, then they won't be going into landfill. And, and that whole durability and lifespan of products is something that we're all noticing. You know, do we expect our televisions to last more than five years or your computers to last for five years? Um, the issue is, you know, why shouldn't they if we can repair them? Absolutely. And, um, and it should be indeed uh, an affordability issue, shouldn't it, in the longer run? It should be easier and cheaper to, to replace a, a, a seal or a bulb uh, than to throw the whole thing out and get a new one, shouldn't it, for the consumer? That's exactly right. I have some exterior lights at the moment that um, I didn't realise at the time I bought them that there's actually no bulb that I can replace. So when that light LED light goes, um, goes off, um, I'll have to replace that light. Yeah. So that's a perfect example of who would have thought that you'd buy a light that you can't change the bulb in. So I think it's a very significant environmental issue that particularly I think the pandemic has highlighted this, that we can't always, um, I think the availability in the supply chain that we've, you know, issues in supply chain, really significant. And people financially um, are in, uh, in a worse financial position often and are more environmentally conscious, I think. Mm. So repair, particularly for the younger generation, is a very significant issue. And we're seeing um, clothing repair um, pop up, you know, fantastic um, sewing and knitting and recycling and reuse um, all through the repair community. Um, it's, it's a fabulous thing to see. Absolutely. It, it, it seems to have uh, be, be a bit of a turnaround, though, because it has been since perhaps perhaps since the 60s, certainly for the last 50 years or so, there's been a, uh, a, a trend towards disposable uh, consumer goods. What, what's, what's changing now that the Australian uh, Treasurer should uh, uh, be, be behind this and, and the, the Productivity Commission should be supporting this inquiry? What's, why is that happening now? Well, it's interesting. There's been a very big push in the United States. There's... Um, first legislation on right to repair came in in 2012 in the United States and um, they have 20 states in America with right to repair legislation that covers farm machinery, cars, as well as consumables. So that's all being debated and we've seen regulations go through Europe. So I think Australia and New Zealand have been conscious of of this issue for a while and certainly listening to Michael Zuckar this morning at the AAAA um, conference where he announced the mandatory car sharing um, legislation that's about to come out. I think it's very much about um, the consumer choice that consumers buy these goods, they should have the right to be able to um, choose who repairs those goods. Well, it's exciting. Uh, you know, planned obsolescence is a massive issue for the environment, and it's great to see this. Uh, this is is leaping ahead. We'll um, we'll have to get you in another time and uh, and uh, talk us through developments as they occur, if that's okay. That would be fabulous. I th I'm really passionate about this, so I think most people will be as well once they understand that they're basically trying to empower consumers and give you rights back over the goods that you 
that you own. That was Leanne Wiseman, Professor of Law at Griffith University. Over the weekend of the 24th and 25th of October, a group of around 20 incredible ecologists and helpers conducted a campout flora and fauna survey at Bungaby State Forest, with a particular focus on mapping threatened species. It was organised by the Northeast Forest Alliance, NEFA, and the Lismore Environment Centre, as well as folks from the Bungaby Forest Friends. With the likes of Dylan Pugh, David Millage, Hugh and Nan Nicholson and many other awesome people, we are fortunate to have their expertise on side. Amiga Breakspear was there and she filed this report. Scrub melletwood or scrub turpentine. It's being attacked by myrtle rust, so myrtle rust has introduced disease. It's just attacking myrtle trees, one of the iconic Australian families. Lilipoli and tea tree and all that are in that family. Yeah, and you could... There's a few species that have succumbed particularly badly, and this is one of them. So it's now this is critically endangered. Basically, it's stopping its reproduction, so it's got nowhere to go, really, as a species, and it's critically endangered because it's likely to go extinct. Last night, you went out spotting into the forest and found a lot of really amazing species. Call playing, mostly, using playback of the calls of the species we were targeted, and the marble frogmouth showed up really early. Everywhere we played the call, basically, we got responses um, all along Oakey Creek and another wet gully too on the uh, western side of the forest. Also managed to get a pair of sooty owls responded really well. They came in quite close, so we had really good views of them. And there are a few other species around too. We sighted a potteroo crossing the road, Longnose potteroo. That's a federally listed species. And there were a lot of flying foxes, grey-headed flying foxes in the... Um, grey ironbarks and quite a few frogs, no threatened frogs, but a good frog assemblage with great barred frogs, pretty noisy, and laughing tree frogs. Yeah, overall it was a great night. I'm with David Millage, the very famous botanist. Thank you, David. That's quite okay. Hi, I'm sitting here with Naomi Shine from the Lismore Environment Centre and from Environmentalist Anything, which is a great podcast we'll talk about later. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Amiga. And we're sitting in Bungaby State Forest. Yeah, it's beautiful. Over the weekend base camp where crew have been set up and doing forays with Dale and Pew into the forest. That's right. Yeah, and yesterday we had a whole bunch of experts. The idea is to have, well, we had uh, Dr. Rob Coyman, who's a forest ecologist, Andrew Murray, Dr. Barbara Stewart, Nan and Hugh Nicholson, all really amazing botanical experts. David Millage, another forest ecologist. Dr. David Newell came, he's a frog expert from SCU. And of course, Dylan, he's a renowned conservationist. Was the whole weekend organised by Dylan? That's right, yes, yeah. I thought with all those illustrious names, someone had good contact. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. All local ecologists and experts to help us find threatened both flora and fauna species that are new threatened species that Forestry Corporation doesn't know about yet so that we can have extra restrictions placed on the logging, like they have to put on wider buffers if we find certain species. We want to help direct their the 5% that they have to protect in perpetuity due to the changes in the laws around how they protect habitat. We want to direct them to you know, the really high-value conservation parts of the state forest rather than them just picking any old bit and saying, we'll save this bit. Because we're at Bungaby State Forest, which is only about 20 kilometres out of Lismore. That's right. And the 
Forest View Corp been talking of coming in here. They were going to come in the 2nd November, but it's been delayed from community opposition. Is that correct? Yeah, we think so, because they just opened it up as active on their logging portal, but didn't have a harvesting plan. And Bungaby Forest Friends got created and... So there's a bit of, you know, community resistance. So they've actually backed down and they're going to put a proper approval harvesting plan in place, which means they won't log now till April next year. There's not really that much loggable up there except a few really significant old growth trees. It sort of makes you wonder what they're after up there. Yeah, well, it's pretty much the same when they go in to log any native forest that it doesn't seem right in this time of climate change to destroy and make more fire-prone native forest. We really need to be switching all of our timber needs to plantations. 80% of our timber needs come from plantations already. We really need the, the ecological benefits of state forests to be held and to be able to increase by you know, buffering the effects of climate change for us all. And could I ask you what you've been on several walks, including a night walk, what significant species or flora and fauna that you came across? Well, last night we went spotlighting and David Millage had recordings of owls and nightjars and he played the marbled frogmouth call, the female marbled frogmouth call. And every place we stopped, male frogmouths would come in and they flew above us and they called back to the recorded calls. And they're a threatened species that aren't recorded as being in Bungaby State Forest. And it will require forestry to have to put much bigger buffers on the streams, on the mapped streams and creeks. So that's really positive. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. What about some of the other species you've come across during the day? And has there been anything that's really impressed you? Well, the size of some of the trees, there's still some quite big trees there. It's obviously been logged, but there's a lot of lovely trees which would be great to preserve. I'm not a flora expert, but we were looking at Desmodium or Thorny Pea, which is local to the Lismore area. So that was one of the threatened flora species that they were tagging. There were a couple of others as well. There's a couple that are prone to myrtle rust, so they're scrub turpentine is having trouble producing any seeds because the rust kills the flowers and so we were basically tagging and gpsing those scrub turpentine trees uh, and the desmodium so that was great so basically i just love forests so (laughs) i find it really beautiful out here and there are lots of bird calls some large old growth trees yeah really really huge trees up in the middle and there's a nature reserve behind Bungaby State Forest and there's quite a lot of large trees back there last night one of the things we saw out the nature reserve was sooty owl two sooty owls came because David Millage was playing the recording of them and after about it was it took about five minutes and then these two sooty owl flew over to us and were sort of shouting down at us from the trees because we'd been playing this uh, they thought we were another sooty owl moving in on their territory so they had a big it was beautiful big yelling fest at us they were staring down at us we could see their big round eyes and it was great oh my gosh that sounds amazing and so i know there's a change.org petition that's right what other future actions and things that are going to be happening in regard to this well i think the Facebook page? Yeah, Friends of Bungaby Forest. I think it's a private Facebook page, but if Lismore Environment Centre will post any actions. And now it's a matter of waiting for Dylan's report about what's been found here this weekend to come out, and that will be sent to the EPA. So we're basically waiting for the EPA to, for the report, for the EPA to act on any new information, and maybe, hopefully, Forestry Corporation will decide not to log based on what we've found. And if they do go ahead, I am sure this forest being so close to Lismore and such a lovely 
lush forest that people will come and blockade. So we'll let you know if that happens. People can also hear more updates on the River FM Environmental Is Anything and the podcast. Do you know how to find the podcast? Yes, you just put Environmental Is Anything in the Google search box and it will come up. There will be Anchor, Spotify, any place that has podcasts on it. Environmental and Anything is on there. Thank you so much, Naomi Shine. My pleasure, Amiga. Great to talk to you. Today we've heard grey shrike thrush. You saw the drongos. We get whipbirds, scarlet honeyeaters, grey fantails. A bit earlier on, I was hearing brown honeyeaters, lewin honeyeaters, little lorikeets, which are a threatened species, pheasant kookles, yep, lewins, and that's grey shrike thrush again. Cicada bird. Sounds like a cicada starting. They were on the EPBC migratory list for a while, but they've taken them off more recently. Drongos oh. yeah. is one of them. Yeah, they weren't listed though. I mean, the ones that are migratory species listed under the EPBC Act are ones that migrate into New Guinea and Indonesia and are subject to international treaties. Well, they don't. They but, do. But, but they're not one of the listed species, though. Yeah. They don't know why. New Guinea. They might do, but uh, there's a lot of migratory stuff that's not listed under the EPBC Act. But I think the ones that are listed are the ones that are subject to international migratory bird agreements. Okay. So even though the Drongo might migrate to New Guinea, it, it's obviously not subject to any treaty. So, yeah. How all the legalese works. <laughs> Crossbreeds appearing, yes. Euclid, whether they'll be successful in new species or not is something. Yeah. Which one? The uh, crossbreeds sprouting up in uh, plantations. You, uh, you do get natural hybridisation in eucalypts. I'll start to say before you get the Teretocornus grandis crosses yes. around Lismore, along the coast you'll get Teretocornus robusta crosses, which is swamp mahogany, Swimmy, yeah. and And if you ever want to see one, the Brunsheads Hotel, there's a park across the road, and there's a massive hybrid like, trunk like this on it. It's a, Red mahogany cross? Yeah, in Bailey calls it eucalyptus patted and nervous, but he's got ah. it in inverted commas because it's a hybrid, but it's wow. a really widely recognised hybrid along the coast, so you can see it that up at Brunswick Heads. Wow. We went to stay at Mooney Beach last year and there's one of these hybrids in the um, caravan park at Mooney Beach as well. There's this whole pile of corners growing around. There's no swamp mahogany there but I know it's not far away. And so they've got overlapping flowering periods. Same with Grandis and then we bought a tree from the markets which we were sold as a robusta but now it's grown up. It's a robusta Grandis cross so you've got this three-way triangle between those three species and they can all hybridise with each wow. other all in the same subgenus and they've all got overlapping flowering periods in early winter. This is a Dendrocnidae photonophila, the shine leaf stinging tree. And the other one, this, uh, the giant stinging tree, and that gives you much more of a bite. The gimpy stinging tree. Oh, the gimpy. You do get around here, that, which is even worse. Yeah, that one only grows to about three metres high. So all of the leaves are out to get you, whereas the giant at least puts it up there. Well, and, yeah. and also the dead leaves are stinging as well, of giant stinging trees, for months or years later. Yeah. Most of my mates were in Lion Pot Creek and they halfway down they the only flat land was under a forest of stinging trees and even though the leaves were all dead everybody just woke up the next morning itchy. Those were the voices of the North Coast's leading ecologists out at Bungaby State Forest brought to you by Omega Break Spear. Ellie Bird is a Lismore City Councillor she joins us today to talk about the recent fine that the Environmental Protection Authority has levied against the Lismore City Council. Um, Ellie Bird, thank you very much for joining Environmental as Anything today. No problem, Sean. 
Look, as you know, the EPA have recently fined the Lismore City Council for a landfill water discharge. Yep. They put out a statement saying that Lismore City Council has been fined $15,000 by the New South Wales Environmental Protection Authority after 7.22 million litres of stormwater from a waste facility was discharged into a local creek following heavy rainfall in February. Uh, 11 million litres of stormwater accumulated in a holding cell at the Wairala Road waste facility at East Lismore. So they, they consider that this incident was entirely preventable and has been, had a very real potential to cause harm to the local environment, uh, uh, namely uh, Monaltry Creek and uh, Wilson's River. What's the council's perspective on that? Um, so the important bit of information that I think has been difficult to pick up from the EPA media release was that the water that was discharged was from the brand new and empty landfill cell that we had just finished constructing. So it's important to think about it in that context. It's not a discharge from you know a landfill cell that was in use. So the water that was retained within that brand new empty landfill cell wouldn't have been contaminated or wouldn't have had um, leachate or anything in it. So the council has a licence from the EPA around managing discharges of this nature. That licence allows council, and we had permission to discharge the water. So the licence allows that Council can discharge up to 70% of the water that was retained in the landfill cell. Now, my understanding is in this instance, oh, so discharge 70% and then is supposed to pause and measure and test as part of the process of um, that discharge. So my understanding is that in this instance, um, the 70% has been discharged, but the pausing to test and monitor um, hasn't been done and this right. was picked up in an internal review by council staff and reported to the EPA and so the EPA have determined that the process hasn't been followed adequately and therefore it was necessary to issue a, um, a fine. Yeah, so they said, fair enough, there was a self-reporting which sounds very transparent but a four-week delay which they say leaves them unable to actually you know, test the uh, yep. quality of that water. So uh, what's the council going to do to improve on this process to ensure that it doesn't happen uh, this way again? Uh, look, um, you know, that's, that's difficult for me to comment on in detail given that it is operational and it's with staff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure that, you know, the fact that we have done this internal compliance measurement will mean that we've identified that this is a problem and therefore there will be, you know, I'm sure that there will be more rigorous standards and procedures put into place um, to oversee any future um, discharge or necessary discharge of this type. Yeah, okay. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, we'll have to keep an eye on that, hey? Of course. Is there any other news coming out of Council that we should hear about regarding the environment? Um, oh, I guess one thing that um, your listeners might be interested in is that at the latest Council meeting, Climate uh, Council has just voted to put on public exhibition our climate resilience policy that has been recently been drafted. Um, and, yeah, we're looking for comments from the public. Uh, so that policy is an overarching policy document, which um, I'm very hopeful starts to progress council along a pathway to considering uh, climate resilience across all of our activities. Um, we know that with climate change, we really need to start thinking um, 
as well as obviously prioritising emissions reductions, we do need to start thinking about building resilience uh, into our systems and communities. And so this policy uh, is a first step along that pathway. That's fantastic. Well, that's, uh, that's some progress uh, we like to see. But um, we're also obviously concerned about the mitigation and not just the resilience, but the resilience is vitally yeah. important. Yeah. Um, I guess when I talk about resilience, I sort of mean mitigation, adaptation, resilience, um, preparation, all of those um, all of those factors sort of rolled up into the one word for me personally. So yeah, absolutely, um, addressing all of those um, all of those factors. All right. Well, look, thanks, uh, thanks, Ali, for for talking to us and getting uh, no problem, Sean. clear on what's going on with the EPA and the council. Okay, no problem. Have a great day. That was Lismore City Councillor Ellie Bird. Renew Economy reports that it appears that Labor's Maverick Resource spokesman Joel Fitzgibbon has convinced the Federal Labor Party to agree to say nice things about new gas projects and even the ongoing role of coal in the energy system. But what exactly is that going to achieve, they ask. The Guardian reports that Labor agrees to support new gas projects after a public brawl sparked by Joel Fitzgibbon. The Guardian says that the ALP has signed off on a document acknowledging the role gas plays in economic growth, job creation and electricity generation. Whilst Joel Fitzgibbon seems thrilled by this development, it is completely contrary to the statements made previously by his fellow Shadow Cabinet member Mark Butler Shadow Minister for Energy, and just about every competent and independent analyst into the energy industry. Joel Fitzgibbon had this to say to Hamish MacDonald on Radio National Breakfast on Friday. Look, our position on gas is clear. Uh, we support getting more gas out of the ground. We support building more gas pipelines to put downward pressure on gas prices. Uh, we support building new ele gas electricity generation. And, of course, we support... Uh, exporting more gas. However, I spoke to Tony Wood from the Grattan Institute, who's the Director of Energy Research there, and he had this to say about gas and the economy. To be able to argue that we have a gas-led economic recovery as part of the post-pandemic you know, stimulus, uh, we think requires two things to be true. One is that we can get low-cost gas, and the other one is that if we did have low-cost gas, that would lead to an expansion in manufacturing based upon that low-cost gas. And when we do the analysis, our conclusion is that neither of those is true. But even if, even if, we, even if the government itself was to try and um, subsidise the low, low cost of gas in any particular way, it um, doesn't lead to these jobs. I asked gas industry analyst Bruce Robertson from the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. Well, do you think that throwing public money at gas is going to lower power bills or reduce emissions? It can't, in a word. And the reason for that is, as the ACCC has shown time and time again, gas is the highest cost producer of electricity in the national electricity market. And so it sets the price when the prices are high mm. um, and it sets them at a high level. Um, and so this idea that um, putting more gas into the system will reduce power prices is, is pretty fanciful. The gas industry's in a lot of trouble in Australia ever since 2014. They've written off billions of dollars and this was occurring pre-COVID. 
And I think that's the key point. It was already happening prior to COVID, mm. the collapse of the gas industry in, 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 in Australia. In the first six months of this year, $25 billion was written off the gas industry in Australia. And the next six months isn't going to be a hell of a lot better. It looks like uh, a floundering industry. Uh, gas companies around the world are declaring bankruptcy, aren't they? Oh, particularly in the U.S. There's a very strong growth industry in the U.S., and that is um, insolvency practitioners for oil and gas companies. They're going bankrupt right, left and centre over there. We really are seeing a, a depression in the gas industry over there. It's not a normal contraction or pullback or recession. It's the full-blown gas depression. As Deloitte have pointed out, over the last 10 years, the oil uh, and gas fracking industry in the US has lost money at the cash flow line. Essentially, uh, you know, um, it, it has borrowed more money and it has gone to equity investors, you know, investors to get more money all the time because its operations haven't made money. And that's in good times and in bad times over the last 10 years. Fitzgibbon, undeterred by expert analysis or scientific facts, went on to double down on his claim when speaking to Hamish MacDonald. We support gas. Hamish, uh, gas will be important in saving current jobs and the jobs over the next considerable period of time. And of course, gas will help us build the, the jobs of tomorrow. Coal will also help us build the jobs of tomorrow. Uh, that is the party's position as confirmed by the document everyone's been talking about in the media. Fitzgibbon's claims were directly contrary to those of his uh, Federal Labor colleague, Mark Butler, the Shadow Minister for Energy. They have pumped up this idea of a gas-fired recovery for months now as being the centrepiece of their strategy for getting out of this recession. You could not point to a single job that will be created in the time frame that we need no. over the next 12 to 24 months. No. So, so why pump up this idea of a gas-fired recovery as being the way, the pathway out of a recession when we know all of the things they, they talked about, um, if they ever happen, are years off. They're really in the second half of this decade. They're going to do nothing to help us out of this recession. Mm-hmm. What we do know, though, is that is that um, all of the renewable energy projects around the country that already have planning approval that are that are ready to go would create 50,000 jobs uh, but they can't get going because there's no energy policy at a federal level that encourages them as the ALP's coal and gas booster in chief Joel Fitzgibbon concluded uh, the Labor Party works in mysterious ways are you looking for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises Do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips? Would you like to know what simple, effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today? Tune in to Environmental As Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 till 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future, we're hand in hand.